Hello and welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of Chinese revolutionary movements, starting about 1830-something, with the Taiping Rebellion moving forward to the present day. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years, and for me, this podcast is a sort of love letter and farewell letter to this country. That country. I'm not in China anymore. Haven't been for... shoot, it's like two years now. Anyway, this episode is going to be a disjointed ramble to get up to the end of the Taiping Rebellion. There's a lot to be said on the subject of the Taiping Rebellion, but on the whole, it is uh, not the main focus of why I want to do this podcast. I am losing motivation to keep continuing, and given that I am my own supervisor, um, I am going to speed things up. So, this episode is going to be as long as it's going to be. We're going to zoom right up to the final siege of Nanjing. I'm just going to keep flipping through Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom by Stephen Platt, I think. Is it Stephen Platt? I don't remember exactly. Um, anyway, I have a lot going on in life, and... I want to help my faithful listeners, so I'm going to carry this on because I have a lot to think about with China, and there are so many fascinating people to meet. There's no way I am going to do justice to Chinese history with the time and energy and attention that I can spend on this, so I'm just going to start moving. And I'm going to carry it forward as far as I can, uh, up to the present day. So, here we go. So, we've been talking about the Siege of Anqing. Um, China has two major rivers that uh, go through it from west to east. One is the Yellow River, the other is the Yangtze River. And the campaign that we are talking about right now is uh, fought, being fought on the Yangtze River. And one thing to know about China is that it is most of it is very rugged territory. It has only been, with the uh, availability of modern transportation and modern farming and electrical power and gas engines and all that, that um, more advanced farming techniques have been available and that it's possible to live in some of these more rugged areas. I remember going to a tea plantation in an area where they used to grow rice. I mean, because, like, if if you can't really go anywhere, you basically need to focus on growing food to live. Well, if you can ship in rice from some other part of the country, you can then grow cash crops, which you can then send 
downriver to the big cities where they make a ton of money for you and you can buy better farming equipment and it's possible because there's modern ships and modern road and railways and paved roads and all that. Um, that's not yet. It wasn't until like the 1950s and 60s that some of that started to be addressed. Um, when I remember reading something like that when uh, some of the... Um, some of the Chinese youth who were sent down to the countryside, like peasants out there would ask who the emperor was. Like that's how out of touch the countryside is, was. Um, but now, uh, if I remember right, uh, they have video calls, like in some very, they have video call equipment so that the local communist party officials can have video meetings with their their superiors in other parts of the country so the communist party is able to control very very local matters um you know of course they divide up the authority they they, they divide up the assignments and everything but they can talk in real time kind of face to face and Whereas before, it's like you and the uh, the emperor and the people closest to him, meaning Xi Jinping right now, can have much more accurate, up-to-date information about what's going on in very far-flung parts of China. Uh, whereas back then, it's you give a command and, you know, like, you know, like local players kind of know how to tweak things so that it looks like something got done, but not really. And then when the emperor's enthusiasm dies down, they'll go back to business as usual. That's that's how it is, that the emperor does what he can, but yeah, it's... um you know, the end of the uh, imperial system. So, um, the forces of Zheng Guofan, okay, we're talking about the uh, early 1860s here. He had to, he was given a very special commission to raise a military force outside the local um, chain of command, logistics system, political structure, to try to start to defeat the Taiping Rebellion. The, the Taiping were able to run all over China. They had tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of recruits from all over, and Zheng Guofan was, like, basically, it was such a do-or-die thing for him that he was able to reach whatever conclusions he needed to reach to do whatever it took to end the rebellion. That, um, and so 
So a lot of our story has been that he's holding on, besieging the uh, the city of Anqing. So basically, all you really need to understand is that he's making it impossible for the Taiping to have regular logistics uh, between their headquarters in the city of Nanjing, which had been one of the capitals of the Ming dynasty. Uh, also, And so the, the Taiping would prefer to fo- kind of follow the Ming dynasty pattern because the Ming were... Um, they were Han, which is to say Chinese Chinese, whereas the Qing dynasty, which replaced the Ming, was run by the uh, the the Manchu people, and it was like a foreign invader for for them. It would be well. It's uh, similar to how, at the end of the Eastern Roman Empire, you had the Ottoman Turks come in. They claimed the the title of you know, Roman Emperor, but they weren't. You know, they they weren't any of the. You know, they, they were Turks. They were an outside people. So it would be as though they kept a lot of the shape of the Roman Empire in place but it's run by it, it's not it's not even run by any of the peoples that had been part of the okay, anyway it's the the best analogy i can come up with right now so uh Tsung Guofan has a lot of really close calls uh and he god i i like that guy really could have used some Prozac. Um, he, like, just the the situation was so desperate, and that he's so duty bound to pull through, and that he's really going all out. Like all of the pressure is on him. He needs to figure out where to get his supplies. He needs to figure out how to run the political situation so that his troops continue to be willing to fight and die for the sake of the Qing dynasty. And all that is on him. It's all on him. And... Okay, so right, so these pages are talking about another close call, and like we're talking about the movements of tens of thousands of of soldiers. Like the like this is on a on a par with uh, this is on on a level with the American Civil War, except that the Chinese armies here are not at all. Uh, backed by industrial powers, they don't have trains, they don't have steamships, really. I mean, the, the foreigners have steamships that where they, they can run to and from their, um, their outposts in the interior of China. Uh, and a, another critical difference in the political scene here is the foreign powers are trying to 
enforce conditions in China that are good for European trade and uh, different uh, trading companies based in Europe. Um, an interesting side note is looking at how uh, traders from India actually benefited from this because it's not like you're going to just ship whole offices full of Englishmen and and uh, other other Europeans and over to China. They need to recruit locally because they just need bodies for certain roles. And you know, India is a whole lot closer, so you know, they need to send up ten thousand soldiers to guard European interests. They might get it from their colonies much closer to China. Um, so, but the the extreme stress on Zhang Guofan, um, he, you know, I I don't, you know, how like like with with a lot of these stories, you know, how did people pull through? Uh, they just kept trying, and if they completely lost their marbles because it was too much, that's what happened. And if they were able to make it, they did. It, it, but it, in the end, it breaks them down and wears them out. Um, okay, so... Yeah. Okay. So, um, so I'm looking at uh, so Zhang Guofan got got saved by one of his commanders. I'm not talking about religion here. Um, uh, okay. So a retreat. Um, okay. So the the Taiping captured something. So one of the one of the major problems that the the Taiping are having to deal with is that the foreigners are not allowing them to press their advantage. That they're you know they're they're um uh they're not letting the Taiping fight to their fullest extent. Um, it's kind of the opposite of the American Civil War where the 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 opposite in a lot of ways where in the American Civil War the um the south was trying to get foreign powers to come in and and uh force a settlement so that the south could go free from the uh the Union um, in this case, foreign powers did intervene, and they were not allowing the uh chinese the the rebel side for the Chinese to do what they wanted to do. Foreign powers were not stopping the American rebel side in the American Civil War from fighting the way that they wanted. It just so happened that the uh, the Union side was strong enough to keep foreign intervention out, except for the sending of of diplomats and uh, observers and uh, some, you know, some some weapons imports. 
Um, but it didn't, uh, you know. But but the foreign powers didn't stop either side from from fighting any way that they wanted to fight. Whereas it, whereas in uh, in the Taiping Rebellion, they're going to wind up. Um, they they they're they're going to wind up coming in on the side of the Qing dynasty because the Qing by simply by continuing to exist they are a um a local authority that european powers can work with um because they they kind of had them they, they they the european powers had the Qing dynasty kind of over a barrel they they had them and so they were able to work with the Qing and get their consistent trade relationship with China that they wanted. The um, One of the interesting things about Zhang Guofan is that he really didn't like the interference by foreign powers he really really believed in china and one of the things that we're going to see coming out of the of this war is that the impetus for a han revolutionary movement is going to come together we're going to see that come to full fruition with the abolition of the Qing dynasty, and that's, there's going to be quite some lively stuff to talk about uh, when we get up there. Um, and one of the problems that is going to coal that that is going to cohere for Chinese nationalists to address is foreign powers running all over China, and China unable to protect to protect its own sovereignty. I recently got this book on Kindle uh, about the expulsion of foreign powers from China, and I th that's going to be like very, very, very soon to go on my reading list because that's really core to what we're looking at in this podcast. Okay, so beginning of chapter 10, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, we have a giant comet with a brilliant tail. This is July 1861, all sorts of, um, you know, when I was in Chinese media, I had this, I, um, I was working for a magazine called China Pictorial, and there was a decision to change, uh, kind of change the focus of the magazine to be more uh, about cultural topics. And I made this suggestion, what if, like, on, on every issue we put, like, whatever the the Chinese traditional day and year and month was, um, you know, like, th th that could be an interesting thing to, to, it wouldn't take up a lot of space, but for readers it would draw them more into like like on like thinking about the the chinese cultural calendar and and all that kind of thing i remember another time i was 
in uh, Sichuan province in 2008. And the people there, like, they wouldn't ask how old you were. They would ask what your Chinese New Year animal was, like, you know, what what your year and month animals were. And then they could kind of ballpark estimate your age that you know if you looked like you know this is act this is actually how I talked with a uh, a lady I was getting into a relationship with she was Russian but uh, you know I asked what her new year animal was and it turned out that her new year animal was for the year previous to my animal so okay we're we're good 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 age range anyway um so what they would do so like they'd ask what your your birth animal is and so if you looked like you were in your 30s then they could peg you at you know early or late 30s based on the cycle of 12 animals and um like and if you looked like you were significantly older they could kind of guess how many decades um the i was my idea was kindly uh dismissed um they 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 let me down gently but they explained that that was kind of politically sensitive so um and this is something you even see in romance of the three kingdoms that um every time one of the th- the warring factions in that book decides to put put itself forward as the new dynasty they talk about how this element is repl- is the next one in the cycle uh re- of uh of dynastic succession and so they are the next they're they're putting themselves forward as the next dynasty well okay so i haven't gone forward here with this okay so so you know everybody's looking up at this this comet and they don't know how to take it yet and okay let's see who is and so either it's auspicious for the for the the Qing dynasty that they're going to win or it's um okay yeah it looks like this is a an auspicious win an auspicious sign rather than uh unlucky um okay let's see yeah okay so the the emperor dies and the 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 Taiping are excited about that, but the uh, the the Qing forces are kind of winning. Um, one of the things uh, that's really important to understand is um, succession is a really really uh, important uh, political uh, structure to have in place um, if if you can't have a managed handover of power then you really like like then then your your revolution is not going to succeed 
okay, so the 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 Taiping are you know are excited that the 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 emperor is dead. They can use this for propaganda. Um, that you know the emperor was corrupt. That he was debauched. That he was entirely absorbed in living for himself. Um, you know, but then also you have the. Okay, so then one thing I'm seeing here is that the you know, Chinese elites don't necessarily see the passing away of one dynasty to be an absolute tragedy because the nation will continue. Um, so, like when we when we get to in our podcast the communist revolution, we're going to see that. Uh, that the the communist party is very thoroughly chinese that even though it is radically different from any power that had come before it is still thoroughly chinese it's all about china being strong and it just turns out that communism is the ideology that right now is kind of getting the job done the Um, okay, so the, the the Taiping are energized by the death of the emperor, by of the Qing emperor. The okay, so Hongrangan is trying to Hongrangan is a very fascinating figure, but I think that what that his problem is that he came um, like a generation early, so where maybe a generation later he could have joined with the early Chinese revolutionaries who had more Western education and had more decades of familiarity with foreign powers, uh, and they were able to pave the way for the 1911, was it 1911? Anyway, the end of the Qing dynasty, they, you know, he, he, he was caught up in the uh, crazy Chinese cult atmosphere of the Taiping uh, movement that he couldn't implement the ideas that he had for the modernization of China. The, so on we go. Um, so the Okay, so here's some references to missionaries coming and going uh, in the in Taiping territories. Uh, I mean, so mostly, I guess, uh, in the book right here, this is where, like, they 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 are witnessing the progress of the war. Um, oh yeah, something uh, inter something important to understand about, like say the difference between China and um, and like Western Europe. Okay, so uh, modern secularism was really coming together in Europe. Okay, to where in many European countries they would have different flavors of Christianity that they would believe in, and of course they have missionaries going all over the world to share this. 
but there was still some sort of de detachment between there, there was some sort of detachment between church and state uh the this is this being the 1860s it's uh 70 years after the french revolution um so even though france was very catholic still there was the 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 legacy of the french revolution and of napoleon and we had napoleon part 2 that being napoleon the 3rd there was a strong basis for secularism well in in china the that uh detachment hadn't quite happened yet where becoming a christian uh, was kind of turning against china where uh the missionaries weren't just people coming to help china they weren't just um outsiders coming to help out of the goodness of their own hearts they were um harmful uh they, they were a harmful influence on china according to you know according to the, the chinese so where the where the qing were starting to win they would uh they would punish uh missionaries and chinese converts I, I don't know how like like i'm not focusing on that really in this episode but that is one thing that happened when we get to the boxer rebellion you know we'll see the, both foreign missionaries and chinese converts are going to suffer because they are you know they are chinese who have turned on whatever the local chinese thing was and so it's like they're fifth columnists like they're traitors like they're so that's that's one of the so whenever you try to understand one of these sorts of revolutions um when the powers fighting on the side of uh of one of the like when the powers fighting for you know local independence are killing your human rights activists or killing your um your religious workers your uh, non-profit non-governmental organization workers it's because they're they're fighting a political fight that um religion and philosophy and all that is is part of it okay so so here there's a succession of power and okay so there's a sort of regency set up for the qing emperor ooh Okay, um, this is, okay, so at this point in the Taiping Rebellion, okay, the, the, uh, Dowager Empress, she's really going to be taking control, and the Emperor, the, em 
the Empress Dowager, Dowager Cixi is going to be a major, major figure for the next uh, few decades of our narrative. We will come back to her. So she's uh, kind of like a Chinese equivalent of Queen Victoria in how long she held on to power and how much power she had and how important she was uh, as a symbol of that whole era. Uh, but the the Qing dynasty, even though, as we know, it was in its last decades, it wasn't necessarily clear yet. Um, so you, you have this... So, so it's an interesting situation where they, where the emperor, where the, uh, imp, where the Qing dynasty needs the help of foreign powers to suppress the Taiping. They're also still at the mercy of foreign military powers uh, because the those the foreign powers had defeated them in uh, two, two, not just one, opium wars. Um, they okay let's see the um if you ever look into the the characters uh if you ever look into the the types of people who were the european missionaries to um to china they they were some very very interesting people okay so Oh, let's see, let's see. Yeah, there, there's just... Yeah, one of the, the main things here is that um, the a lot of the European, uh, let's say, civil society efforts in China with missionaries, um, yeah, a lot of it is through missionary work. I mean, they would set up schools, they would set up hospitals... Um, foreign companies setting up factories. This is how a lot of the ideas are going to come into China that will be taken up by the later revolutionaries. They, they're... Where... Okay, so uh, some of the Chinese revolutionaries are going to be uh, converts to Christianity... Like Sun Yat-sen and Chiang Kai-shek are going to be at least nominally Christians. Um, Mao Zedong uh, is going to be around um, educational institutions established by you know, by foreign efforts. So, like like Peking University. Uh, one of China's top two universities. It was started probably by missionaries. Uh, Mao Zedong is going to be the librarian there for a time. He's going to... And so as they like stock the library, for example, they're going to bring in Marxist works, which, however much... Uh, 
Mao Zedong is going to be able to read on his own, uh, however much he's going to have access to in Chinese, he's going to hear of Marxism. He's going to uh, turn to this European idea through the uh, the the transfer of of uh, of literature aided by the establishment of European style educational institutions. And so that's that's a really, really critical um, foundational element for where China is going to get a lot of the building blocks for its ongoing transformation. Okay, so uh, when Car okay, so let's I'm going to read part of the beginning of chapter eleven here. When Karl Marx predicted in 1853 that the Taiping Rebellion would cripple British trade in China and thereby throw the spark into the overloaded mine of the present industrial system, he was initially wrong. Um, so British trade, in fact, increased. Um, okay, but the... Yeah, so what it turns out that happened uh, when the Chinese economy collapsed, well, you had the 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 British and other European powers turning up right off the Chinese coast, um, they were ready to do business, so they they could just ship it a little way down downstream and do business with the British right there and kind of keep business going. So they sent tea, porcelain, silks, all that to Europe, um, and so the the main question for the European powers is. You know what they're going to do. Who like whose side they're going to take? Um, they they need things to be stable for for the good of trade. Uh, the um, also one of the the major things that's going on at the time. Okay, so this being the early eighteen sixties, that's when the American Civil War is happening. So the American South might buy a lot of European exports. Uh, the American South uh, raised a lot of cash crops, notably cotton, uh, but also the uh, the the Union Navy was enforcing a blockade around the South, so no more commerce with them, and no more access to. Uh, to raw materials for uh, to British and European factories, uh, no more cotton anyway from the American South. So they needed to find new markets. They needed to find new sources of raw materials, and China was a huge market, and it might also be a source of raw materials. And so if the United States of America was strong enough to keep out European power, well, European power didn't just go away. It got used somewhere. In the end, it's going to be used in China to help uh, put down the Taiping Rebellion. The... Okay, so the... Yeah, so that that's how that's going to go. Um, as much as it would be interesting to zoom in on a lot of the 
particulars of all this that is beyond the scope of what we are going to be able to accomplish. Um, uh, trying to maintain neutrality is really tricky. Um, yeah, because it's it um, selling to both sides of a war is good work if you can get it, but the thing is that uh, one side will see you as aiding their enemy if you're selling to the other side. Like if you sell complete guns, that means that they don't have to build a factory, they don't have to allocate the labor to build the guns. That means that they're able to get back in the fight a lot faster because they have guns that they can just put in the hands of troops. And so you're you're really helping one side or the other a lot by you know, by trading with them. Well, uh, the the British didn't really the British and the Europeans didn't really have an interest in trying to fight a war in China. Um, part of why they left the Qing dynasty in place was the idea that you break it, you buy it. If they completely destroy whatever the local elites were, that now they have to kind of pick up the pieces and try to rule over what they're trying to sell to and trade with. Um, so in all of the decisions for who they're, whose side they're going to come in on, they went part of going in on the side of the, the Qing dynasty was to, to uh, they could work with the Qing, they had the prestige of having been the dynasty. Okay, so zooming further ahead... I mean, like, like there's there's material for very interesting podcasts about the um, British colonial system in in China, just how like, like the lives that people led in the different treaty ports. Um, some of my favorite times in Beijing were like looking at some of the different reconstructions of of uh different things from the early 1900s late 1800s it it was an interesting world in which you'd have a lot of things that i i'd be familiar with like 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 european technology but it's in the the final decades of the uh chinese imperial system it's it's a very beijing is a very interesting place there's a piece of my heart is always going to be there. If you want to find where my uh, ghost is going to be after I'm dead, ride the Line 4, well, just ride the Beijing subway, especially around Line 4. Line 2 is also good. Um, or go to Yuanming Yuan Park. Um and so, okay, so here, what I'm looking at here in the book, um, a lot of the, the question of which side the, the British are going to step in on, it's, it's about preserving uh, British interests. It's about preserving trade interests. And, well, see, that's, that's one of the things. Whoever side you come in on, 
then they're going to have their own definition for Chinese interests. Well, you're going to see this later. So, of course, the Russians are going to support the uh, the Chinese communists uh, in the uh, Chinese Civil War when when the Soviet armies in, intervene in northeast China at the end of World War II, they're going to be very careful to hand things over to communist units, not to nationalist units. They're going to be very careful to leave Japanese military hardware behind for communist forces to pick up. They're going to make it easy for the communists to set up their own base areas. Um, But then later, there's going to be a split where when Stalin dies in 1953, the communists are, the, the, the Chinese communists are going to go their own way because they don't want to just follow the lead of Moscow. They have their own idea about what what true communism and what Marxism is. But also they don't want to just follow the the lead of Moscow. Uh the it was actually under Stalin that uh they try that 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 the Soviet Union was trying to force the nationalists and the communists together into a united front. But, of course, we're going to see that in a, uh, in a bloody, bloody purge, the, the nationalists are going to murder a lot, of the, a lot of the communist leadership that they can get their hands on. Um, so it's, they don't want to follow foreign directives again they want to be the ones in control of their own system. So what the British are trying to figure out here is, okay, so whoever we whoever we support, are they going to be open to our input? Are they going to do what we want them to do? And, okay, so Zhang Fan is more and more powerful uh, because he is successfully defeating the Taiping, his just little by little he is winning against against the the Taiping. Um, the okay, and so the the British are trying to stay out of the war. Um, part of the you know, because war is really expensive. Um, it's it's not something that countries just get into just because they feel like it. Like, like see the uh, like when you ha- there was a before the American Revolution, okay, the the British defeated the French in the Seven Years' War. We're talking about uh, maybe twenty years before maybe 10 to 20 years before the uh, the Americans declared independence in 1776 so like 
10 to 20 years before that is the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War. Okay, so yeah, the, the British win massively. They kick the French out of Canada. They they win really hugely. But the thing is, is that war is very expensive, so then they needed to pay down all the war debts, but but they didn't have the money, so they needed to start taxing the British. They they needed to start taxing the colonists, and so then that led to American. It led to the United States de- declaring independence, and so then there's another war for the British to fight, uh, and critical to American victory is getting the French involved, even though they're still up to, up to their eyeballs in debt for a war that they lost. And the French Revolution happened because they're just they they just the the uh, French government couldn't deal with the debt, just absolutely couldn't deal with the debt. So the British are trying to stay out of the war because they just don't want to deal with that. Um, The British government was able to finance huge military efforts because um, their, their government doings were just transparent enough that the people who supplied money were able to trust that the British would, that the government would continue to pay on, to, to, to pay on loans that they'd taken out to fund wars. But the, if the war threatened British trade, that meant that there would be no more money for the people giving money to the British government so that meant that they were going to have to use force to they were going to have to spend whatever it took to keep the money flowing and okay so where's yeah so the so the american civil war is threatening the british economy um like, like many factories in Britain ran on on American cotton. Well, that's not coming in anymore because the the American Navy is blockading the rebel South, and so that that means the uh, the British are going to step in. Okay, so. Uh, we are zooming in to, okay, so I've, okay, so I'm looking at the count here. I'm like 50 minutes into, oh, yeah, 50 minutes into an episode. I am trying to decide where I want to cut it off because the end is really interesting Okay, so we're looking at chapter 12. Let's look at chapter 13. Okay, so that's Ningbo, um, Flowering Me. Is this Siege of Nanjing yet? I'm not sure yet. Because this is an extremely destructive war. Um, I, I really... 
want to spend you know, like a good episode on the siege of Nanjing. Okay, so oh, I'm so the there were there were foreign forces fighting on both sides um it's it's a little bit beyond the scope of what i really wanted to talk about um a lot of the one of the interesting like when i was living in china um i did okay so i i of course i'm an am an american um i could be norwegian uh, based on the accent, but that's because Norwegians uh, tend, uh, if they learn English, they can have very good English. Um, that's how it goes when you start with a Germanic language and you're learning another Germanic language. Uh, anyway, the so like I had American friends, but then. Okay, then there had to be British friends, because, okay, they speak English. Okay, then have to expand to European friends, and then have to expand to non-Europeans but can speak English, and then have to bring in, you know, Chinese friends who speak English, because there's not just, it's not just Americans around me if I'm an expat in China. I have to make friends with everybody who's there. Um, so when you look at these these for these uh, foreign forces you're you're talking about adventurers you're talking about people who needed money you're talking about um just whoever could be scraped together to form these mercenary forces to support the taiping or the qing they aren't just the people who helped win the war it's like in the the current ukrainian the current war in ukraine there's the ukrainian foreign legion they are doubtless doing a lot of doing a lot that is helping ukraine win but who's really winning the ukrainian forces um yeah they're they're getting a lot of critical support from whatever they capture from the russians uh, whatever they produce on their own, but especially a lot of war materials sent in by NATO countries, the Ukrainians are the ones fighting, bleeding, dying, and and for as much as they are winning, it's mostly them doing it. So the the British will lend a lot of support to the Chinese side in the end, but it's going to be the Chinese who are going to fight the war on their own. The Okay, so a lot of the settings for a lot of these battles are going to be... So the, uh, the foreigners in treaty port settlements are going to do their own fighting in the areas around where they've set up their their trade settlements they'll intervene to support 
missionary centers, I think, um, but it's, it's the, it's an interest, okay, and then here's an interesting anecdote about, um, you know, so the, the Americans sent a, an ambassador to Beijing, well, the, 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 uh, the Chinese learned that, oh yeah, America, the Americans are dealing with a rebellion right now as well, and so they used that as a, you know, they said, we see you're just like us, and, you know, you've got a rebellion, we have got one too, so we can appreciate your case, um, so it's, it's something I'm going to need to revisit in other episodes, um, because, like, for example, as Chinese elites get to understand international law, as they begin to in- integrate with the inter- the system of international law, they're going to be able to start fighting for themselves according to the terms of European uh European-derived, European-worked-out, European-imposed international law. Like, I think, like, at, at one point they get the Germans to move out and even provide an indemnity based on arguments a- appealing to international law. I mean, so one of the, the big things we're going to see as we get along as China emerges as part of the international system uh China today, they, like, as part of the completion of Chinese revolutionary movements, everything that they're doing today, it's along the lines of modern international norms. They follow them as far as they can, and then they edit them according to their own national interest. But powerful nations are going to do that. Uh, so we'll we'll deal with that as the Chinese come out of the isolation that was imposed on them uh, after the Chinese Civil War ends with the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. Uh, so we'll deal with that when we get to that. So as... Uh, as European and North American powers are able to start having direct diplomatic relations with China uh, during the Taiping Rebellion, it really solidifies that the foreign power is going to come in on the side of the official Qing dynasty. Um, of course, the... Um, Of course, the foreign powers are not really going to do very much to view the Chinese as equals, but the side that is able to actually deal with foreign powers in according to their norms of diplomacy, that's where they're going to get some results. Whereas... um, Ooh, I'm really seeing some good materials here on Zhongguofan. 
Um, Zhang Guofan being a really interesting character, uh, like he he's his, I mean who he is, is um, is really important for understanding the rise of just kind of this patch of Chinese history. Okay, so more about Chinese trade. Okay, crossing the mountain. Okay, what am I what am I looking at here? Okay, 16. I'm not So I just skipped over a whole bunch of the book because I'm really really trying Okay, so I'm going to end the episode here. I've skimmed ahead a lot. Um I've given a lot of different th odds and ends for thoughts. Um, so I'm going to focus the remaining episodes either on the siege of Nanjing or I'm going to talk about uh, Zhang Guofan himself uh, or like, like really because what we want to focus on is how this sets up the next series of Chinese revolutions. Thank you for listening through with me through this uh, rambling episode. Uh, I'm going to get it to where we're going to be a lot more focused. Um, I had to skip over because life's gotten crazy, and I don't want to just have you going um, just, you know, you know, like, so when, please, God, is this series on the Taiping Rebellion going to end, well, we're bringing it to a close uh, very, very shortly. Come back next episode for maybe some specific numbers. I've been your host, Nathan Bennett. Uh, please send me an email, ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com. Talk to you next time. Bye.